Hello, this is Toby. Long-time listeners will know that I occasionally pop up at the start of an episode to apologise for or explain the quality of audio of one of my guests. But for today's episode, I need to apologise for the quality of my own audio. As you might be able to hear, it's not terrible by any means, but it was recorded in a less-than-ideal environment using a little headset microphone rather than my usual slightly more professional setup. And that's because I've just moved house. I actually edited this episode using a computer perched on top of an unplugged washing machine surrounded by boxes and wires. So if you can spot the difference between this audio quality and the way I usually sound, well, your ears are not deceiving you, but normal service will resume next time when I've unpacked some more boxes, I hope. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez is originally from the Philippines. He has a background in industrial engineering, and he now specializes, among other things, in disaster risk management. He's worked as an advisor to municipalities in the Philippines, and he's also won awards, in particular for his work in youth participation in preparing for and managing future disasters. He is currently based in Abu Dhabi, where he's an associate professor in the Faculty of Resilience of Rabdan Academy. So, Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Toby, for inviting me to your podcast. Well, it's good to be talking to you, partly because um, although the audience for this podcast is global, we tend to spend quite a lot of time talking about scientific advice through a European lens or through an Anglo-American lens or whatever. Um, But on the occasions when we have talked to guests with experience from other parts of the world, Those have been some of our most interesting episodes. So with that in mind, you've worked a bit as an academic advising policymakers uh, in the Philippines. Tell us a bit about that work, your work in general, and in particular, um, what mechanisms for informing policy exist in the areas in which you work. Um, So my specialization is in disaster risk reduction or disaster risk management. I teach uh, emergency management and business continuity management uh, at Radden Academy. So how to prepare for um, emergencies, crises, and disasters. In in the Philippines, um, so whenever I have um, free time, I work with local governments and uh, civil society organizations, um, how to um, help local communities prepare for disasters. You know, we, we all know that the Philippines, you know, um, it's a very disaster-prone country. We have earthquakes, volcanic corruption, um, especially typhoons, 20 typhoons a year. So it's really essential for local governments to have this uh, capacity to prepare for disasters. Yeah. And how does it work? How do they get that advice? I mean, you say you've advised them, but in what kind of framework? So in the Philippines, we have a well-defined science advisory mechanism at the national level. So the president gets advice from the National Academy of Science and Technology. So it's modeled after the U.S. um, system. But at the local level, um, science advice is mainly... Uh, informal and most of the time unsolicited. In my case, I approach uh, cities. Like if I have an idea of a, a, pro- a project, I approach them. If they are receptive, then we talk more about the details of the project. In the case of Makati, I've been working with them since uh, 2009. So I, when I was still um, doing my master's at Kyoto University uh, in disaster risk management, there was a big typhoon that hit Metro Manila. So immediately after the typhoon, um, I got sent back to the Philippines to do some research how to compute the baseline for disaster resilience. 
Um, so I visited, you know, the affected cities in Metro Manila. There are um, 17 of them. So one by one, I talked to the planning officers and um, made them um, answer our survey questionnaire. From there, uh, I, I was able to build my relationship with Makati. So um, up to now, I, I've already had three major projects with them. So one was um, the topic for my PhD dissertation, so comparing uh, youth participation in urban disaster resilience versus in the rural area. And then my latest project with them, which started in 2018, uh, Disaster Waste Management. Okay, so it sounds like it's going well. Yeah, it, it's been smooth sailing so far. Uh, mainly because, you know, the people I've worked with in 2009, I'm still working with them up to now. So it's been almost 14 years. Yeah. So what you're describing sounds largely like research. So that these projects involve you asking the policymakers for information for your own work. Um, which is great. How does that then connect with science advice, where the flow of knowledge is is supposed to be in the other direction? Yes. So um, I, I got more knowledge and skills in disaster risk reduction. So uh, whenever I'm in the Philippines, I, I visit them. So just to catch up, whenever I I know of some funding opportunities, so I, I reach out to them. Uh, if they're interested, we can develop the proposal together, something like that. And I think it was interesting that you mentioned most science advice at a local level is unsolicited. You just go to them and say, hey, I think I can help you here. Yes, because uh, if you formalize the science advice, it will go through a bidding process. So the government can just hire you know, uh, anyone who will approach them. So it will be um, through a competitive bidding and it's uh, the, the process is quite lengthy and Maybe researchers don't have the time to, to go through the process and get accredited and things like that. For for projects to push through, main um, science advice would be um, like at the individual capacity of the researcher. So it's uh, pro bono and um, there are no contractual agreements. So that's easy for both parties. Right. So with this competitive bidding process you mentioned, obviously we're familiar with how that works in, in government settings for procurement of all kinds of services. But it seems like a different thing. To, at least my first reaction is that I don't tend to think of science for policy work as being a kind of commercial enterprise that you would tender for. Um, I mean, it's done by academics or boundary organizations. Well, except, of course, now I hear myself say that out loud, maybe the division between the two isn't so sharp because, of course, governments use technical services and then those can sometimes help shape policy on scientific topics. I don't know. Help me out. Are these the same things? Um there are local councils. Um, in the Philippines, we have 150 cities, um, 1,500 municipalities. All of them are required to have their own local disaster risk reduction and management office. And there's the council, creates the policies. But um, in our current uh, laws, there's no explicit mention of the council having a member from the academe. So I see. So I think there should be two members from civil society organizations. So that's where, you know, uh, scientists and researchers maybe can provide inputs. Mm. But it's not required that it should be a scientist. Mainly because uh, in, the, in the Philippines, we have um, very, very few scientists, like less than 200 for, per million of the population. And according to UNESCO, a good number would be around 400. So half of the required number. Not all cities and municipalities have universities or colleges where they can, you know, approach scientists. Okay, so it's a supply limitation as much as a demand limitation. That's interesting. And the councils you're describing, it sounds like they involve all kinds of stakeholders, right? So it's less the policymaker saying we have a knowledge gap and more saying 
we need to consult everyone before we can decide how to move forward. Yes, uh, the government has this um, open governance approach that everything should be participatory. There should be a consultation process, especially for big projects, you know, that would require um, major funding from the government. So some mechanisms are there. There should be like expert panels. There should be um, advisory committees. Um, but the requirement that, you know, uh, someone um, who is a scientist should be in, in, the, in those um, committees or working groups um, is not explicitly stated. So if you can, if, if there's someone available who has the competence, who has the expertise, then that's good. But otherwise, not required. Okay, makes sense. Interesting. And just, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this, in which case I'll probably just cut it from the recording, but let me ask you anyway in case you do. Um, the, the most obvious recent example of when scientific advice, like science advice proper was needed, of course, was, was COVID, right? For the, the pandemic a few years ago, when every country was suddenly desperately needed like academic advice. And in that situation, a committee of stakeholders is not a lot of use. What you need is a scientist to tell you right now, here's how the disease works, here's how we can stop it. Um, do you happen to know how that was handled in the Philippines when local authorities needed that kind of advice? In the, in the case of the Philippines, that's quite funny, you know, because the government has its own task force. And then there's another informal task force that's more popular than the government task force. So um, in two of the major universities, there are many uh, like scientists who form a group. And every day they produce uh, like updates. Um, what's the number of people infected or what's the rate of infection? They do that also up to the province and um, city level. So the uh, local governments can actually monitor what that um, informal group is publishing on a daily basis. They know um, if they will still impose the lockdown or um, be less strict. So in, in that case, at the local level, there's no um, organization for that. But at the national level, because they do it um, at the sub-national level, the, the monitoring, then they also publish the information um, on the internet so everyone can have access okay yeah so they publish data but not as it were policy advice hmm. so you've given a very useful outline of how things work in the philippines at a national level and also at the local level where you've worked i'd like to zoom in a bit more now on the local level if we could what specific issues do you give advice on uh, for example for disaster waste management so in, in the past you know um, when there's a typhoon large amounts of debris are generated everything goes to the landfill and sometimes you know the landfills they are already up to uh, near, near the capacity uh, more and more seats are uh, into um, climate change mitigation climate change adaptation so they also uh, know that there's a need to recycle um, the disaster debris so we, we see the example from japan you know after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami um, 31 million tons of um, garbage was generated but uh, in japan they were able to recycle 80 percent of the debris so that's very impressive we won't be able to do it because we, we don't have the capacity we don't have the equipment but um, it's it's a good benchmark in makati uh, makati is one of the model cities for disaster risk reduction so they are really um, interested, you know, how to improve systems, how to improve, um, how to meet targets, things like that. So they're very re receptive to science advice. They've been hosting uh, master's and PhD students uh, studying disaster risk reduction. If anyone with a good plan will approach them, they are willing to do this kind of activities. And which people are these? Who do you interact with? Is it like the political leadership, the mayor's office, or is it individual civil servants or what? 
In the case of Makati, because it's a large city, I only interact with the people in the like environmental services department or uh, urban planning and um, with the disaster risk management office. I interact only with the advisor to the mayor uh, on, on disaster and environmental issues, but uh, I only see the mayor if there's a program you know, where she has to give an opening remarks or welcome remarks. So I, I don't interact with the mayor herself. But for the municipalities I work with in the rural areas, before you can go to the uh, lower departments, like to, to the um, disaster risk management office, you need to pass through the mayor. The mayor has to approve you know, your, your presence there in order for um, other officials um, to entertain you. So there's really a stark difference between the urban cities and the rural municipalities, how they handle science advice and how they you know, interact with people who are providing the advice. Mm-hmm. I know one role that science advisors often talk about as well as or even instead of actually answering the scientific questions themselves is being this broker. So the science advisor may not know the answer, may not even be an expert on the topic that's being discussed. But the idea is that they're at least able to connect the policymaker with someone who is an expert or who does know the answer or kind of distill sources from multiple experts. Do you also provide that kind of service? So um, I really see my role as um, an intermediary. You know, I facilitate um, networking uh, between Makati and other experts um, in disaster waste management. For example, um, I've connected Makati with experts in Nepal, in um, Sweden, and in Japan. They are more qualified, <laughs> you know, in, in providing you know technical assistance. So yeah, you know, I I've met many experts in conferences. Um, um, I know how, who to approach. So really, just connecting Makati when I don't know the answers. Yeah. And on that note, do you have any training in scientific advice yourself, like formally, or have you just learned it on the job? Um, no training in science advice. Um, I, I got training in science diplomacy um, from TUAS, uh, which is based in Italy. Um, then that was when I realized, you know, when you, when you are involved in science diplomacy, you should also know how to give science advice because you are talking to, you know, um, officials in the Department of Foreign Affairs or um, you, you need to collaborate you know, um, with uh, people in other countries to tackle um, maybe a, a regional challenge. When I started working in uh, science diplomacy, that's when I, I was exposed to science advice also. And I, I learned about INSA. Right, right. So INSA being the International Network of Government Science Advice or Advisors, I always forget which. Um, I think that's how we originally made contact because you got an award from them, right? Mm. So I, I have this friend, um, he won, uh, I think, a research award from INSA. So I was reading his paper and I realized, oh, what he's proposing is actually what I'm already doing. So <laughs> uh, the, the next year, they had another round of um, this um, award for um, science advice promotion. So I applied and I, I was lucky enough to get selected uh, among the, I think, uh, they, they gave awards to 10 people uh, across Asia. Mm-hmm. I also want to ask you about some of the challenges that you encounter, um, because it doesn't sound like there's a very formal structure for science input, but it does sound like nonetheless your input is very welcome. You know, the people you work with know that they need you and understand the value you bring, especially good value since it's free. I wonder how widespread you think that that feeling is in the Philippines in general. Do you think there is a good understanding or appreciation of the role that 
scientific evidence can play in policy making? Um, in the case of disaster risk management, yes, every, all the mayors know that they need science advice, but um, most of them don't know how to access science advice, like who, who to approach, where to go for science advice, and um, what would be the engagement like, like whether they would pay or, you know, if it's for free and, and for how long. It's not very straightforward, like the government doesn't have these guidelines, you know, for how to um, engage with scientists um, for, for, for their um, local uh, chief executives. And um, one challenge for me, sometimes uh, the mayors change. In, in the Philippines, we have very frequent elections, like every three years. But of course, um, when mayors change, you know, the, the priorities change. So, for example, if one mayor, she would be interested in nature-based solutions and how to protect coastal areas. But the next mayor, um, his priority might be poverty, uh, alleviation or, you know, improving the health system, things like that. So, you get set aside, you look for a new opening, how to, you know, um, engage with the new mayor. Yeah. And also, it's frustrating, right? It must be frustrating when you invest your energy and time into building a relationship then the people change and you have to start all over again. Mm -hmm. I really love working with Makati because um, the people I work with are also licensed environmental planners. So we are in the same professional organization. So it's very easy to communicate with them because, you know, we, we, know, we know the language. Uh, we have, um, we know the terminologies. Yeah, connecting with them was quite, quite uh, fast compared to if I work with a municipality in Mindanao in Southern Philippines. They don't have the resources, and sometimes um, some of the officials there are uh, coterminous with the mayor. So they don't really have that uh, the skills actually required for their position. They were just appointed. Um, so these kind of things like um, hinder some aspects of the projects. The uh, implementation is very slow, or sometimes they don't get back to you. Uh, they, because um, maybe they're embarrassed that you would, you would find out that you, they are not really competent for the position they're <laughs> occupying. So, yeah. yeah so, but, so, I mean, how do you respond to that? Because I don't think that's at all an uncommon situation to find yourself in as an expert advisor. At first, I'd be really disappointed, like, you know, because um, I only approach cities if you know, I have a good idea for a project. But uh, if they're not interested, then I said, oh, maybe next time or I'll find somewhere else. Uh, some other cities would want to work with me. Yeah, fair enough. Um, have you become involved in any political debates or controversies? I mean, for one thing, if you're giving advice on how to respond to disasters, I guess those are very hot topics which people have opinions on and which can be like politically divisive. Um, how is it for you as an expert kind of wading into that political debate? Mm, because I'm based abroad, so I'm like shielded from this kind of controversies. And and I don't post anything on social media that might be interpreted as you know um, something politically sensitive. So I'm I'm very careful to be very neutral. Uh, for example, um, there's a city in Mindanao in southern Philippines. Despite you know several changes in the administration, I I was still I've still been able to work with them because uh, I stay away from the politics. Like I, I don't I don't uh, go there when it's election time. Um, they know that I don't take sides. They realized maybe that, you know, I, I'm just there to really help with how they handle disasters. While I have you, Glenn, I'd like to ask uh, something a little bit more general. I know a lot of the audience of this podcast are early and mid-career researchers who 
um, perhaps would like to get involved in uh, helping to influence policy, but haven't got much experience of doing that. I wonder if you have any tips from your experience, I mean, either from your part of the world or just more generally, about how an early career researcher might get involved in this area of work. Hmm. <laughs> I, I was just very fortunate that uh, my advisor in Kyoto University, he was doing this kind of projects, you know, really um, helping local governments. So I think for um, early career researchers, um, maybe find opportunities where you can initiate some um, projects with cities or municipalities, maybe start small. And if they see that, you know, it can make a difference, they would be very interested to have you again and maybe consult with you in another project related to uh, disasters. Yeah, it's sometimes it's a matter of luck that if there's an opportunity and then um, you perform well in, in, in that project, then you will, um, they will remember and sometimes they would recommend you to others. Excellent. Thank you. That's a good piece of advice to finish with. Um, it only remains for me to say thank you very much, Dr. Glenn Fernandez, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Uh, thank you very much, Toby. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisabetta Shushenko.